Welcome to Human First. My name is David Tilston, and this podcast explores the methods, habits, and processes which allow us to excel as human beings. My aim is to utilize the experience and knowledge of experts from a wide range of different fields and to translate these into easy to follow principles that can be adopted by you to improve your life and those around you. Today, I welcome Josh, the co-founder of Ape Nutrition. During this episode, we discuss the story behind the brand, supplements, fat-based snacks, mushrooms, MCT oil, carbon neutral meat, sustainable farming, meditation, breathing, training, new products, and a lot more. Let's get into it. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Hi, David. Thanks for having me on. I've wanted to discuss your brand for a while, Uh, not just your brand, but how you got to the stage you're at. The brand is Ape Nutrition, which I'm sure you can explain more about. So what I'd really like to get into is what has been your journey? Obviously, you're a co-founder of the company and anyone else that has been involved in the making of Ape Nutrition. So for me, I suppose my interest in nutrition, which is the origin of the company itself, started when I was like around 15, 16. Um, I was playing a lot of rugby, like most lads growing up in Wales. I'm from Cardiff originally and uh, yeah, just became obsessed with rugby and took to it like a duck to water a little bit um, and started sort of making progress in terms of like playing for regional and um, I played a bit for Wales at the under 16 level and this sort of thing um, and then went over to Gloucester Academy but there was one sort of like common thread while I was like playing rugby, you're too small. It used to be told I was too small by every coach, every S&C coach. And, um, you know, at the age of 15, 16, 17, for me, that was just like, I was reading like every article on T Nation, speaking to all the S&C coaches, speaking to all the biggest guys at the gym, trying to work out how to put on weight. And I tell this story all the time, but it was, I remember one S&C coach said to me, he said, look, the best thing you can do to wake up at 4am every morning and drink a mass gainer shake. <laughs> so I used to get up, set an alarm, 4am, and I would make this mass gainer shake while I was in college with like two scoops of monster mousse, like some disgusting protein powder, oats, peanut butter, honey, and I would just blend it up and it would be like thick sludge. And uh, yeah, I'd have that by the side of my bed and i wake up at 4am every morning and just smash it and then go back to sleep. And looking back now, it's crazy knowing what I know about holistic health because it's like, you know, sleep's so important. Um, you know, your stomach's got circadian rhythm as well. You know, I encourage most people not to eat a few hours before they go to bed. Yeah, I was getting up at 4 a.m. And, and, and smashing this mega shake. But throughout that whole time, what, it, you know, what one of the things it taught me was, right, okay, if I'm smaller... I need to get an edge somehow on the competition. So I became obsessed with nutrition and training. And, you know, obviously from that example, I didn't know what I was doing in the early days. But, you know, as I went through my university uh, career at Loughborough um, and then on to doing my master's at Bath, I started learning more and more about nutrition and it became kind of like a a bit of an obsession of mine, like a, a side obsession. Um, and then once I finished playing rugby, when I was doing my master's degree at Bath, I kind of got to that point where I was like, right, I'm not good enough 
to go and play, you know, premiership top flight rugby. Um, but I could push it and try and go play champ, the league below in the in England. Uh, but when you look at kind of the salaries that guys get paid playing in that league, it's, you know, it's not a lot of money. Uh, and on the other side, I was like, I've seen a lot of my friends from Loughborough going into the city and earning, you know, good salaries and enjoying themselves in London. So I thought, right, okay, actually, I'm going to take that route. Um, and within a couple of weeks of working in finance, I realized it wasn't for me. But, you know, you keep getting carrots dangled when you're, you know, when you're in those sort of graduate roles and those jobs. Um, and I ended up working in London for quite a number of years, um, progressing through, you know, the standard sort of career path. Um, but I, and I, and I did quite well. That was the thing I did quite well, quite young. Um, and I think it was, it was my girlfriend, Izzy. Uh, she just literally turned to me one day and she's like, London is consuming you. Um, I'd become, you know, a different person through that. I'd gone from being like a guy, loved getting out in nature, loved sport to all I was thinking about was, you know, my job. I was becoming very materialistic in this sort of thing. Um, and she was like, let's get away. So kind of on a whim, we both finished our jobs, handed our notice in, and we took off. We, we flew over to India and we planned this like indefinite trip, I suppose, like overseas uh, with no return flight back. Uh, and we landed in Delhi. And I don't know if you've ever been to India. I'm guessing you might have with yoga, no? I've done... Uh, I, I went to Goa, but I've always been told Goa is not a true representation of what India's like. So, uh, yeah, I can't really comment too much. I'm only via the airport, and that was lit, literally it. You just literally bounce on, don't you, straight down to Goa. Yeah, so that was... If I ever went back to India, that's exactly what I'd do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so we landed in Delhi, travelled India for six weeks, which was a complete and utter culture shock. But... Within two to three weeks, I had the exact same feeling I had when I first started working in finance, which was, I cannot keep doing I know I can't go back into working in London and in finance. So uh, I made my mind up I wasn't going to go back. And I was thinking, right, okay, what else can I do? And just naturally through de-stressing while I was away and kind of like, you know, traveling around and starting to read more books and listen to podcasts and just consume content... I was gravitating back towards what I'd always been passionate about growing up, which was the nutrition side of things. Um, and this idea for my company, uh, Ape Nutrition, started to form. So then we fast forward a few months later and we were in Vietnam. And this really sort of synchronistic, seemingly random thing happened to us where we landed in this little little town and I was looking on TripAdvisor for somewhere to go get food and I was like oh this place looks like it does great smoothie bowls and um, it was a yoga studio so we jumped on the moped drove to the yoga studio and we walked in and there's this little guy in there in like all white robes with a orange like third eye painted on his forehead I think what's going on in here and uh, started chatting to him and uh, he was the meditation teacher at the, this yoga studio and he'd arrived that morning and he had a two-week course starting the next day and uh, my sort of previous experience with meditation had been was you know a few goes at the Headspace app and I'd kind of done it and thought oh, I don't know what all the fuss is about 
Um, but yeah, so we signed up for this meditation course and it was, I think it was two hours every other morning. Uh, and we started doing it and completely life-changing experience for both myself and my girlfriend. It was just absolutely incredible. So following that, my girlfriend's actually become a meditation teacher. That's what she does full-time. So that's how life-changing it was for her. Um, for me personally, I felt like the veil had been lifted. And a lot of people will say this when they kind of start, I suppose, meditating for the first time or being present. Uh, you realize that you've been living the vast majority of your life on autopilot up until that moment. And it's like now all of a sudden for these few moments in the day where you can actually become present, you're in the driving seat and it's revolutionary. And I think another massive thing for me as well was it allowed me or it facilitated me to develop empathy for others, which was something up until that point I don't think I'd really felt as a human being. It sounds crazy, but I was a very type A personality. I was really, really driven. That's kind of why I'd got to where I'd got to in rugby, why I'd got to where I'd got to in uh, finance. And I was very you know, I know the right way to do things. This is how you do it. If you don't, if your way doesn't align with my way, then your way is the wrong way. And uh, yeah, the meditation and I suppose self-reflection during those sessions just made me realize how I'd been as a person up until that point. And it gave me this crazy, like empathetic feelings for other people. I was like, it was, it was just such a powerful experience that, it changed my life and then, you know, meditation to, in some form has been a staple of my life ever since. But it also kind of completed the philosophy for me in terms of Ape Nutrition as a company where I was realizing more and more about kind of what I thought was a more optimal approach to nutrition. I'd already been introduced to uh, the mind aspect of physical performance in terms of like visualization and stuff like that and, and that was kind of part of my philosophy then during that two weeks this spiritual aspect came in I didn't know much about it at all but I thought this is a massive piece of the puzzle and I started kind of creating this philosophy for my personal and physical development um, and then I thought wow this is this is revolutionary I need to share this with the world Obviously, not knowing what I know now, so many people had come to that same conclusion before me. Um, but at the time, it was just like incredible to me. Um, so yeah, that was kind of like uh, where the, the philosophy for Ape was born. And I developed the idea for the company from then on. But I didn't actually have anything. I had a philosophy, I had a few ideas for products, but you know, I had nothing physical to show for it. Uh, and we were still traveling, you know, we were three months into what ended up being a seven month trip. So I just kept working on the idea for the company, sort of developing a business plan and get, you know, coming up with ideas, but not actually doing anything. Um, and then it was when we landed back in the UK, uh, I realized how expensive it is to start a company. Um, and I thought, right, I need to get some capital. So I went back into working in finance in London because I thought that's how I can make you know enough money to start a company uh, in the quickest amount of time and I ended up working back uh, in you know the the sort of deepest darkest part of the financial district Canary Wharf 
um, for like 18 months uh, after that while I was building up. I had, a, I had a figure in my head. I was like, right, I need to get to this amount of money and then I can finish and start the company. So that's what I did. And during that period, once we got back, uh, I realized, right, London definitely isn't the right place for my, me. And my girlfriend knew it before we'd even gone away, but then I knew it wasn't the place for me. Um, so we made an exit plan and we moved down to Bristol. Um, we thought it was like a bit of a halfway house. I'm from Cardiff, my girlfriend's from Exeter, still not too far from London. And I was still commuting and working in London um, during that time. So then, yeah, we were, it was when we were in Bristol, I finally got to the point where I was like, right, okay, I can, I can finish working. And I started eight uh, in full, I guess. It's um, really interesting that you mentioned about you had the ethos first and the brand was formed around that because sometimes when people want to create a brand, it's like, right, we've got a name. So now we need to create a subtitle and something that supports the name. But I like the fact that there was that ethos first and foremost because it's it, it does show them looking at your site now, it shows in the way the brand has been built, like the depth to it as well. And there's a story behind all of this, which I find really interesting because when you consume a product, it's almost like you're, you want to know why why you got to that point and the reasons behind it because it's very easy just to pick up a product and say oh yeah it's got these ingredients so what I, also i mean i've been very attracted to this way of eating over the years and i had a similar journey for those that obviously listen to the podcast will know uh, and others that follow the channel sometimes i think we need those holistic that holistic input and i know india has that it does this thing to people as well i can't really comment because i had more of a sort of how to say it most of my teachers have learnt in India and spent years in India and then taught in other areas so they taught me in Thailand and they taught me in the UK but it's always seemed to come back to India seems to have this way of sort of giving people these these ideas and making them realize what they want in life and sort of the fundamentals as opposed to getting distracted with like you said money and the city itself because the city is i mean I, I go into london for a couple of days and i'm like right i'm good to go and i know everyone's different but again because i think because growing up in a more rural environment on the coast when you go into a city it's like whoa this is this is crazy this is this is insane just the pace the pace of city life is so different to being on the coast yeah and just going back to your first point about the sort of the ethos becoming before the business it was so funny because when I got back to the UK, I got to work in the kitchen on developing our first product, which is the, the keto sort of low carb protein bar. And uh, I remember ringing up factories to try and find someone to do a first production run. And people couldn't believe that I'd already come up with the brand name, the, uh, you know, the design of the packaging, the name of the product, the ingredients of the product, because how so many of these companies work is it'll be a businessman who will want, you know, he'll see a gap in the market for uh, say on a vegan protein bar or, you know, whatever. And then they just ring a company, one of these manufacturers go, I want to create a vegan protein bar. And the company is fitted to not only develop the product, pick the ingredients, they do the branding, they do absolutely everything for that company, which was, so so surprising to me but now having been in the industry for a few years it's that's really commonplace it's it's a lot more rare to find a brand that has developed their own products 
yeah it's like a white label and then brands are just sticking their own stuff on top yeah exactly and you can see that i see products from certain companies where it's exactly the, they're exactly the same product and you i know from just looking at them i know who the ultimate creator is and it's just like they put it's almost it, it, they put the you know they might just change the colors or you know whatever um which is which is crazy when you're coming at health from you know what how we've developed all the products is we're super conscientious of how we source you know not only the ingredients but even like the packaging for example we use myron glass jars for our mushroom products and for the beef organ capsules and stuff like that and myron glass is a special kind of glass that protects the product from uv rays but also set uh, lets in certain spectrums of ultraviolet light which uh, kind of charges the product effectively um, so it's like for me coming into it from a naive standpoint i was thinking every supplement company is going to be doing this you know it's going to be someone that's super passionate about health and but it's, yeah it's just not the reality of the industry i remember seeing that with a lot of pre-workouts or branch chain amino acids or whey proteins the the consistency like you said would always be the same or the ingredients they might move the ingredients around on the label slightly change the consistencies but fundamentally it was always in a pre-workout it was cut I don't know, it could have been creating monohydrate with um beta alanine citrulline malate all these different things that are in there it's always the same type of things so yeah it, it is i mean i've spent a few years working with a sports nutrition brand years ago and i did see this at length especially they say right new brand has come out check out these new products and they were the same things redone so when i saw your brands through a, a good friend and a client i've taught for years she was eating your fat packs over and over again she's like you've got to try these you have to try these so i used to eat them on the way when commuting to and from work I was going to ask you actually what was the first so the first product was keto fuel cacao and cashew nut flavor that one yeah and then from that point what was sort of the next sequence and why that was that was the original product um and just because i was trying to fill a gap for myself we spoke about off the about this off camera before we, we started on the podcast but uh basically when we got back from uh traveling i'd kind of been researching you know all different types of diets and the ketogenic diet kept popping up it was really popular at the time especially in kind of that holistic american community with like uh you know I kept hearing it mentioned on like Paul Check's podcast, Carl Kingsbury's podcast and these sort of people. So I thought, oh, I really want to try the diet, but uh, I'd lost loads of weight from being abroad, especially in India and having deli belly for a couple of weeks. Yeah, that was going to be one of my questions. Did that happen? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think is nine times out of 10, the answer is going to be yes to that question. Um but yeah, so I'd, I'd lost like loads of weight and I thought coming back and knowing what I knew about training and nutrition, I thought, oh, well, I need carbohydrates to, you know, bolt back up. So I didn't actually try it initially, um, but I was still reading about it and talking about it quite a lot. And my girlfriend said, well, I'm going to try it. And she started doing it and she, she's pretty lean anyway, but she went, you know, super lean. And she was also saying it was making a huge difference to her cognition while she was meditating. So she was like, Loving it, she's like, you've got to try it, you've got to try it. So um, I tried it, but I wanted to do kind of an experiment where, well, I still want to gain weight, but I want to try the diet. So I'm going to prove that you can gain weight following this diet. And I did do it, 
but it was difficult because you know protein and fats are so satiating so I was kind of feeling like I was force feeding myself to be able to get the amount of calories in to gain the weight on that third ribeye just trying <laughs> yeah yeah exactly just trying to get it get it down yet dousing everything in olive oil and um yeah it was it was it was it wasn't too you know it wasn't like I was stuffing my face but I was I was pretty full all the time and that was kind of um during that period I was kind of like well you can't have anything sweet on this diet there's you know there's nothing to curb sweet cravings you know on a say on a Friday evening like I want a little treat and I was like eating 85% dark chocolate or something like that. I was like oh, I kind of want something a little bit more and you know now now there's quite a few like keto brands and treats you can get out um, a friend of mine's got an amazing company called Kinetic Kitchen. They do keto donuts and with made with almond flour and stuff. But um, back then there was like nothing. So I went about creating this bar in my kitchen effectively purely for myself to, to eat. Uh, and then I made it and I started giving them out to some friends. And they were literally, uh, you know, in the kind of like cake tins where they're made out of silicone. You can like pop them out in the freezer. I used to have them in like trays of them in the freezer and just give them to friends. And they were like, these are like, these have got to be, you, you've developed this philosophy for a company. You want to bring out, you want to do a company. You're obsessed with this diet. You've just made it. This is your first product. Like, you know, don't look no further. This is it. So yeah, we went around, we went about, you know, actually going through the process of turning that from something that was in the kitchen to an, you know, an actual product that was viable to sell. Um, and then after that, the next product was uh, our MCT oil. So I don't know if you know much about MCT oil, but MCT stands for medium chain triglycerides. And it's just the fatty acid length chain. So you've got short chain fatty acids, medium chain, long chain. So MCTs are the, the medium chain ones and they're derived from coconut oil. So when you eat coconut oil, you know, X amount of that's going to be MCTs. Um, and the, the beauty of the MCTs is it's quite uh, like rapidly turned into ketones in your body. So it's a great energy source for someone following a ketogenic diet. What I usually say, it's like the equivalent of, um, you know, like one of those glucose energy drinks you, or packs you see people eating when they're doing like ultra marathons or whatever. It's kind of that, but for people following up, you know, who are metabolically flexible and fat adapted. Um, but the beauty of the MCT oil as well is it's also great for gut health. So it's antimicrobial, meaning it's like it helps balance the bacteria in your gut. So you get like a favorable you know, amount of positive as opposed to negative bacteria. That's a real simple way of explaining it, but in a nutshell. Um, and yeah, that was the first two products. And it's uh, the good thing is with MCT, isn't it? It's caprylic acid, depending which one you're using, can, can create. Uh, issues with your gut so if for anyone that's eating copious amounts of coconut oil you know what i'm talking about because it <laughs> it's uh is it six and twelve that the ones that can play around with your stomach a bit and eight and ten are the better ones in terms of um high consistencies yeah so basically the shorter the chain the quicker your body processes it so six is a short short chain and Basically, if you're you're not used to consuming MCT or like this is what you're getting at, it can go straight through you. So I always say to people, be cautious. 
like five, <laughs> ten mil for the first time because otherwise you're going to be doing the quickest dash to the toilet you've ever done in your life. Um, yeah, so it can be metabolized too fast sometimes. Yeah, I think that's that's what happens with a lot of people when bulletproof coffee was this massive thing. People were saying, right, I'm going to get the coffee in. Coffee can obviously be a bit of a gut irritant as well. And then they're whacking in a load of coconut oil, loads of butter, and those the high fats as well, if your stomach's not accustomed to it, can cause an issue for some people that aren't sort of more fat adapted. But yeah, I learned about those things as well quite quickly. So um, <laughs> I, I, I found MCT oil really beneficial. I found it, in terms of mentally, having that in the morning with... I still have a double espresso in the morning and have found having MCT oil somewhere in that first couple of hours made a huge difference. Like no need to, didn't feel the need to eat until midday, one o'clock. So a 16 to 18 hour fast was easy. Very, very easy. Yeah, well that's that's one of the main reasons people use it for is to extend what you call like a fat fast. So, you know, you are technically breaking your fast if you drink coffee with some MCT oil in it. But what you're not doing is you're not spiking your blood sugar levels. So, you know, there's benefits to that. Although, you know, a lot of people fast for what they call autopathy, um, which is cell death. You know, you're not, that's not going to happen um, from the research that I've seen if you're uh, drinking MCT. But, you know, you're still not going to be, like you said, you can extend your fast in terms of if you're doing it for like doing a calorie deficit, you're just eating eight hours. Well, all of a sudden you take some MCT and that allows you to easily hit that 16 hour window. And I noticed with the quality of the products like zero palm oil, organic, these are all things. I mean, it seems like you've gone almost for the quality with all the products, quality, not just of the product itself, but also what is contained in, like you said, the certain glass and making sure that every material, every ingredient supports the ethos. Yeah, for sure. And that, that was one of the things we wanted to set out doing because at the offset, when I was looking at other supplement companies, I was thinking there's so many corners that are being cut here and quite kind of maybe naively at the beginning, I was thinking, right, we're going to do everything to the best possible ability. And then as we've gone in, we've, we've completely stuck to that. Um, but once you get into the industry, you realize why other companies aren't doing it. And the main reason is because the margins are a lot smaller and then you can't sell into retail because you haven't got the margins to be able to sell into retail um, because they're wanting to buy the products off you for less than it it create you know it cost me to create them. So, but you know that's something I'm I'm really proud of with the company, and that was something that I wanted to you know something I wanted to be in the UK. I wanted to be a supplement company that you could trust that anything we were putting out was the highest quality, and you could kind of take our word for it. And also in terms of, you know, the information and the content and everything else we put out as well, I wanted to, that to be just as high level as the products um, because I think it can be so confusing, this whole industry. It's like there's so much information and there's so many different websites and so many people saying other things. And I kind of wanted to create something where I could cut through the noise and people could just come to my website and say, read something and, you know, know that that, is a solid piece of information. Something I wanted to get into actually, you're talking about the quality of your products. I think there's a lot of misinformation just from speaking to local farmers, friends of mine around the use of beef and those type of products. 
could you go into sort of the reason behind uh, the grass-fed beef organs and the colostrum and the benefits behind them also why the method of sourcing that you use and various other companies that support your ethos as well would why, why these are beneficial not to us just as health but also to farmers and to animals i'll start with the health to to kick us off so organ meat is probably the most nutrient dense food on the planet and not only is it nutrient dense but those nutrients are in a bioavailable format what that means is they're readily usable by the human body now you'll often see say you googled for example good sources of iron now liver would come up but you'd also see spinach you know and other plant foods um and it's not really fair it's not really comparable to look at these uh food side by side on a piece of paper because the bioavailability of these are you know completely different so i'm not sure ex- the exact numbers um i can send them to you after if you want to put them in the show notes because i've got them got a big table somewhere on my computer with it all but uh basically the iron in liver is called heme iron and the iron in spinach is called non-heme iron and it'll be the same for all plant or the all the iron in animal foods versus all the iron in plant foods now when we eat spinach and we take in that non-heme iron we need to convert that to heme iron in our body before we can actually utilize it and during that process we will lose a lot of that iron so it's not as efficient to get our iron from a plant source as opposed to an animal source and this can be replicated across um, other things so for example vitamin a is another one so in plants uh, vitamin a is called beta carotene in animal foods vitamin a is retinol it's two different forms now retinol is the form we use in our body whereas beta carotene we need to convert that into retinol before we can utilize it in our body so if you look at these things side by side say you took a piece of liver and you took spinach and carrots and you looked at 100 grams of each not only would the liver be higher in iron and vitamin A, but it would be in the most bioavailable format. And, you know, we need micronutrients. The micronutrients is the information that helps us run our body. So vitamin A is amazing for, uh, for eyesight, for gut health. Um, iron is what we create our red blood cells, which can transport oxygen around our body. And, you know, vi- vitamins and minerals is something that is kind of overlooked in the mainstream health and fitness community in the modern day you know a lot of people focus on macros you know that term if it fits your macros is thrown around all the time and should probably be thrown out the window for, for you know for the rest of life but um yeah it's like we need to focus on the micros more and uh the micros in organ meats are you know as good as they're going to get um, so yeah, that's, that's the main thing. And, and the beauty of the, the capsules is that, you know, you take six or seven of those every day and it's equivalent to about 10 grams of raw organ meat every day. And what you're going to do there is you're constantly topping up your micronutrient store to run all these bodily processes. Whereas, you know, say for example, Western A price, which is a really good resource for anyone who's looking to understand more about sort of paleo eating and the importance of organ meats and that sort of thing. Their guideline is to eat around 200 grams of organ meat per week. But the issue with doing that, if you eat it in one sitting, is that certain nutrients, which I think, don't hold me to this, but I think B12 is an example of this, is something you can't 
hold on to. So you might get a big hit of B12 every Monday when you have your liver for dinner, but then you won't be getting it again until next Monday. Whereas if you're taking the capsules, you're getting a little top up of that B12 every single day. So um, what I recommend people to do is I recommend to take uh, seven capsules every single day and then also have a portion of organ meat once per week. So maybe personally, I'll have a 150 gram portion of lamb's liver because that's what I find most, uh, you know, that I actually enjoy the taste of lamb's liver. Luckily, I was brought up on it. Um, you know, my dad's a big fan of organ meat. He's like eats heart and stuff, which I still can't stomach. But yeah, I'll still eat organ meat around about 150 grams a week. And I know, David, you, you know, you take the organ meat capsule. It'd be interesting to know if, like, what you felt, if you felt any benefits to taking them or. Yeah, I. It's something I've tried to introduce for the last, what, 18 months. So, working in conjunction with uh, Ryan, we've been talking about using more organs in the diet but i was chatting to a friend of mine dom as well um nearly two years ago and he was very much into a carnivore approach or, or a nose to tail approach and he was very much about trying to get organs in in some form and i think yeah i think cast liver was the first one i tried and then i was told to try and get some more chicken liver in as well just for for the copper aspect just to help sort of work with iron uh, some of the iron stores i had in the body were just doing their own thing so yeah, I mean, I found the organ capsules were actually really good. And a good friend of mine as well, he said that he hasn't changed anything about his diet. This is completely genuine. And he said he's seen improvements in his, he said in his mental cognition, so his mental function, improvements in his skin and his hair. They're the big things he's noticed from taking them. Yeah, yeah. And it's like you hear, kind of hear these stories time and time again, because, you know, like I said, it's basically everyone's going from, or a lot of people who take them will be, nutrient deficient in some way shape or form you know whether that's a particular nutrient or a variety of nutrients then they start topping that those stores up through take, taking the organ meat capsules or just incorporating organ meat in their diet and then it hits a point where you really you know the those stores are replenished and then they're moving towards the optimal range and you you know you genuinely start feeling the difference from it um, and then in terms of kind of like the environmental impact and the ethical considerations around it you know the ethical stuff is my personal opinion is when you look at into the wild you know animals eat animals and say you had cows wandering around in the wild the likelihood is they're not going to eat uh, reach a ripe old age and sort of lay under a tree and, and and pass away that way you know the the reality of the situation is that you know they're probably going to be eaten from the inside out by you know another predator um, so that's, you know, I believe, um, in eating meat, you know, human beings, you know, should eat meat optimally. And I think it's, it's, you know, it's natural. It's what our ancestors have done for as long as we've existed on this earth. Um, but also I'm a huge proponent of grass fed, properly raised animals. You know, I do not agree with factory farming at all. Um, I know there's a huge sort of debate round at the moment of like, could you feed the world with grass fed meat? And I've seen studies showing, you know, from people that are, you know, deep in the industry that they think you can, but you know, that's not my place to say, I guess there's, there's still a lot of research that needs to be done, but I think it's definitely something we should be striving to do as a, as a population, you know, increasing, uh, you know, our production of grass fed meat and decreasing, 
our our reliance on factory farming, and you know, not only that's going to lead to animals living healthier lives and higher quality of meat, but it's also going to lead to the resurgence of small run family farms um, and local businesses. Uh, and then if we look at the kind of environmental standpoint, well, you're seeing farms uh, in the US and there's a company called White, uh, sorry, a, a farm called White Oak Pastures. And they've shown that their farm is actually sequestering more carbon from the atmosphere than it's given off in its cattle farm. So, you know, we see this argument all the time that cows are a huge uh, contributor to global warming and the ice caps melting and all this stuff. But in reality, and I saw this um, study which was featured in a book called Sacred Cow by Diana Rogers and Rob Wolf. It's an amazing book um, if anyone's interested. And they uh, basically say that cattle production accounts to 2% of greenhouse gases. And if you look at, uh, I think it's transport, and then the other one is, is like big industry, they both account for around 28% each. So, you know, it's minuscule in, um, in comparison, but not saying that that can't be improved because if you stop a lot of the factory farming and you start bringing in uh, more grass-fed farms, well, all of a sudden more soil would be sequestered from the atmosphere. So, you know, that 2% is the potential to decrease even further. Um, so, yeah, that, I think I've covered your questions that I know I went off a little bit. No, it's good. It's, it's covered everything I sort of wanted to pitch there. I mean, this is the thing, isn't it? We talk about this a lot, and I've talked about this in previous podcasts. When you, you pull one part of the equation away, so, for example, if you just look at saying cows give off, whether they burp it or fart it, whatever it is, they give off say two percent of the the gases released into the atmosphere. What they're not, what's not being taken into account is what's sequestered into the land, what's going back into the soil. There's no disputing that heavily cropped farmland is like a desert, and where animals graze is very green. It's very, um, yeah, it's basically how it should have been. Really, it's basically how we've evolved over a long period of time, and it's very hard to dispute that. Really, when you when you really look at it. Again, it's always the methodology, isn't it? It's like saying, it's like pitching an exercise to someone. One exercise might be needed for, in, uh, for injury rehab or for a certain type of thing, whereas you go to someone else, something else might be needed. So it's always very dependent on the methodology used, not to say that that exercise is completely worthless. It's how it is introduced. And as you said, if you have more grass-fed animals that are living like an organic natural life on natural pastures that's very different to a factory farm because there's less vehicles involved it's most likely going to go to a farm shop that might even be on the same land so there's no transportation involved and i i remember chatting to a friend of mine who was in the shipping industry and he was saying if you look at those tankers that are off at sea that are transporting food from uh, across the world so obviously we're in the uk so say brazil argentina southern us across to us the amount of fuel those things use is in thousands and thousands of cars every single hour those things are running so we need to balance these out how many people are involved in the trade and what can we do on a local level to support our own local community but equally to start bringing these up but it's not in the interest of these multinational corporations who would like to have 
the food everything else that comes into it without getting into all the other stuff but like the medications everything all in one place because then you have the full circle but the way we've evolved is little communities supporting each other yeah for sure and there's even like little um sort of implications well they're quite large implications but things maybe you wouldn't think of directly is like uh water runoff from farms so there's an absolutely incredible documentary that I recommend everyone watches called The Biggest Little Farm. Uh, you can get it on Amazon Prime. I think it's like six fifty, which is quite expensive for a documentary on there, but it's worth every single penny. And uh, that shows it's it's a couple that take a farm in California, which is uh, desert, effectively desert, and they transform it into the basically the Garden of Eden over the space of seven years. It's like incredible when they're finished with it. And they... Uh, experienced this period of really really heavy rainfall in the area and the rainfall destroys all the other farms it's just you know it's just floods on their lands there's these big pools of water and their farm which is sat in the middle of all these other farms the the ground because it's so rich and this the soil so aerated because they're using regenerative farming practices where they're rotating the crops they're rotating the animals just captures all the water there's no issue whatsoever um, and, you know, that's natural farming practices. That That's what would have been used, you know, for generations and generations. And it's only what's kind of dropped away in the last, you know, 100 years, I suppose. Yeah, because if you, if you put glyphosate into the soil and whatever else has been used, Roundup, etc., you're going to kill off all the worms, all of the little creatures that are forming these little channels through there to keep the soil aerated and obviously to do whatever they need to, to to sort of poop in the soil and keep these things going. It's always been fascinating. The more I looked at it, the more I thought this, it, it, it can't, when you see it, it's hard to unsee it when you realize how these things actually work. And there's a great thing on, I think he's on Netflix, talks about, I think it's Will Smith. I think Will Smith does the voiceover for it. And it goes through how, say, if bees aren't working on one side of the planet, how that impacts the other side or if bats don't fly from one area to another, the knock-on effect is massive. You can have like a desert form because these bats didn't move from, migrate from one area to another just because they didn't poop on the rainforest. It makes such a massive difference. So we have to, when we think of these things, I think we need to sort of zoom out a bit. It's like anything in life. We zoom out and sort of take into account the big picture. Then you tend to see maybe you want one cow for the year. And I've been on both sides of the spectrum. I've, I've eaten more of a plant-based diet because I had to in certain areas which I've talked about in previous podcasts and I've tried to look at both sides of the argument and I have tended to fall more so on sort of support the farmer support the local guy because or lady because they're the ones that are going to keep these things going and that's really important for our future and food food security as well yeah 100% and it's interesting you say about that the Will Smith documentary and how one thing on one side of the planet can affect the other side it's it tends to be from from watching that biggest little farm documentary and from looking at other stuff it tends to be human intervention which upsets the sort of natural cycle of things and it sh- that the documentary perfectly encapsulates it because once they get everything set up it starts running itself and when something is knocked out of the balance the the farmer or the two farmers their job is almost to step back and just observe the farm and think right okay what can we tweak here to knock everything back into balance 
And it's almost like they're the conductor of an orchestra and that's their role rather than, you know, making these big changes all the time. And it's just, they let nature take its own course. Whenever something just sort of slips out of balance a little bit, they just correct it. But there's no, once it's all set up and running, it's just minor changes here and there. I like the fact that they step back. They just step back and, and sort of let it happen, like sort of observe the whole process because that's, that's so different, isn't it? If you if you constantly jump in and react at the first sign, it's um, for anyone obviously in finance, I suppose you can relate to this better than I can. But if you're watching stocks and you react every time it takes a little jump or drops a little bit and you panic and you sell and you buy and you're constantly probably going to lose money in the long run. Whereas sometimes if you start to step back and observe as the farmer might do, you again, like you said, you see that big picture and that that uh, documentary, I just looked it up. That is One Strange Rock and it came out in 2018. That's, um, it's worth, it is good. It's, it's the whole series as well. It goes through all these different areas of the world. Awesome. Um, there's also, you've got mushrooms on here. Obviously, I think for many people, when you say mushrooms, there's probably two thoughts come to mind. Some people think, oh yeah, the random things that are growing in the garden and then the other type are the magic type that people tend to relate to. And I think mushrooms have definitely come more to the forefront of nutrition and the benefits of them so would you be able to go into the products you've basically introduced to eight nutrition and why you've used them yeah okay so um we produce three different types of mushrooms lion's mane cordyceps and reishi we, we sorry we don't produce them we source them now um we get our mushrooms from china and china have got like a really rich history in what they call sort of medicinal mushrooms and that's the reason we get them from there is because they've kind of perfected the art of cultivating them in what they call a wild crafted environment so it's as close to how how they'd be in the wild as possible but mushrooms like i think cordyceps is the most expensive supplement on the planet in its wild form it's twenty thousand dollars per kilo <laughs> Yeah, it's really expensive. So basically, the, um, they perfected this art of, of growing them in nature, but in kind of a farmed environment. So they still get fresh uh, access to fresh air, you know, natural sunlight. They use well water to, you know, to water these mushrooms and that sort of thing. And they grow them on their natural substrate materials. So a lot of these mushrooms will grow on uh, fallen logs and things like that. Um, now the benefits of these mushrooms there's well there's a whole host of benefits but kind of each one has their own USP that they're known for now lion's mane uh, helps regrow the myelin uh, sheath along nerve cell axons so a good example is say someone throws you a ball and it's you know it's from the side and you just catch it out of the corner of your eye and you reach your you reach your arm out and you, you grab it how quick that message signal is sent through your brain to enable you to react and catch that ball. That depends on kind of the health of the myelin sheath along these nerve cell axons. And they naturally, um, as we age, amyloid plaque builds up on these and it, you know, slows, starts to slows people's cognition down. And, you know, in extreme examples, this leads to uh, neurodegenerative diseases as people get older and older. Well, lion's mane has been shown to actually regenerate that, that myelin sheath. So it's amazing for brain health. 
Um, and there's a really cool study, actually, I'll send it to you if you want to put it into the show notes, because Paul Stamets, who's kind of the world's mushroom expert, uh, really, uh, really well articulates it in the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. But he, um, he basically says that there was a group of mice and they injected them with a neurotoxin. I always feel sorry for mice, like they get the raw, raw deal in a lot of these experiments. But yeah, they injected them with a neurotoxin and, um, no, sorry, first and foremost, they had them like do a maze and, you know, they were all got the hang of the maze and they were able to do it. And then they injected them with the neurotoxin and reintroduced them to the maze and they weren't able to navigate the maze. And then they started dosing them on lion's mane and, you know, within a few weeks, they were all able to re-navigate the, the maze again, which is, is pretty incredible. I know it's not humans, in humans it's in mice, but still it, it, it's, uh, it's a really powerful study. Um, so that's kind of the USP of the lion's mane. Uh, the cordyceps upgrades mitochondrial health. So, you know, mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell and cordyceps increases mitochondrial function. So it's amazing for physical energy, but it also has crossover into pretty much everything. And then reishi uh, is called the mushroom of immortality in, in sort of Chinese medicine. And um, it's because it's kind of the most parasympathetic of the mushrooms. It's got a really relaxing, calming energy to it. So I actually, you know, you said earlier about having double espresso every morning. I'm the same. I'm, uh, I like I like my coffee. I just try and keep it to one a day. But I kind of make like a bulletproof coffee every morning. So I'll put my double espresso in with 10 mils of MCT oil, uh, a quarter of a teaspoon of lion's mane, a quarter teaspoon of... Uh, cordyceps and then I'll you know blend them and you know it creates like I suppose it's like give well it gives it like a really creamy texture it's really nice coffee it blends really well and you've got like a little bit of an earthy taste of the mushrooms which tastes quite nice with the coffee but then what I do is I'll use the reishi later in the day so I like to use it as kind of a trigger for I finish work for the day and I want to switch off and start calming down and I might like make a reishi tea and I use that as part of like my ritual going, right, I'm out of sympathetic work, training mode. I'm ready for the evening, relax, you know, rest and digest mode. So that's kind of how I use them personally. That's good. I was just seeing that the recovery pack included that with CBD as well. Is that, yeah, CBD or? Yeah, yeah. So CBD similar in that it's, a, it's kind of a parasympathetic product. They're not sure exactly you know the mechanisms of how it works yet because it's, it's kind of like new to the market and there's still a lot of research going on but it's the same it's it's has this like calming yeah knock you into a parasympathetic state so it's good to, to my girlfriend always makes it she'll make like reishi tea with hot water and then put some cbd drops in the top it works quite well so for those obviously wondering we, we have mentioned this before but sympathetic is obviously the the way the body is building itself up to do something to move is generally the the primary source of that so that could be we've talked about breath work before generally longer inhales tend to bring you up shorter exhales and then if you were to go to a parasympathetic an example of that would be a relaxation so that could be a, a short shorter inhale in comparison to the exhale so the exhale would be longer so effectively it's building you or getting you into a better state of rest and recovery, as Josh was saying. And the idea of the products, and I'm yet to use these, um, but I'm keen to obviously uh, 
have a go and these these are something I'm going to be looking at because I'm always interested to see how you can enhance things. Uh, we can do certain things with the body and obviously we can give more time to these things and try and optimize by learning from others. But sometimes there can always be a little introduction of these things just to improve how things work. As the whole psychedelic talk has sort of gone about and how they've taken off over the years because I think people have started to say, well, if I can experience something, maybe I've got the hook. And when you get the hook, then you start doing the work. So it can work from many different ways. Um, but yeah, I'm keen to keen to look at some of the the mushrooms you actually use because I'd be really interested to see how the uh, ratio works in conjunction with uh, meditation practice, with my meditation and breathwork practice, just to see the difference. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, and that's kind of I, I know you've got this down, but that's one of the often when people will come to me with questions and it might be like young athletes or anything like that and they say, you know, what's the thing I can do to move the needle? And I'll talk to them about the importance of nutrition and sleep. But one of the things I always say, which I think is massively overlooked, and it was one of my main issues when I was playing rugby, um, was I didn't prioritise rest and recovery enough. And Paul Check, who's uh, kind of one of my mentors, I've done a few of his uh, holistic lifestyle coaching levels um, and he's got a phrase which is the harder you work out the harder you need to work in and I think like you said that my favorite working in practice are things like meditation getting out in nature cold water and I always advise people that these are you know these are incredible tools and quite often they're free but if you're looking to take your practice you know a little bit further you compare them with something like a reishi or, or a CBD and it you makes it into a bit of a ritual because um, that's personally something for me I like I like the idea of that like my my evening routine will start with something like the CBD reishi tea and then I might do some meditation some breath work a contemplation practice and it you know it all it, it becomes a ritual as opposed to just like a task that I'm doing Ceremony is huge in many different cultures, and I'm sure you experience that in, in India. Is ceremony is at the heart of of everything. You have tea, there's a ceremony. You have a fire, there's a ceremony behind it, and there's a reason behind it. And it's something that I, coming from the background I had, I found a bit when you when you're chanting and doing various different things, you find it quite hard to sort of relate to in the initial stages. But the more you do it the more you start to see why these things appear, the different sounds that are created by the body, the the way these things work internally. Um, and not just that, it's also, it creates this environment around what you're doing. If we really dial it back, it's like unconscious eating. The difference between having the TV on at dinner and not having the TV on and engaging with people at the dinner table or actually seeing the food you're making or even making the food. If you make the food, it feels like more of a ceremony. You've gone through the the process of starting from scratch, making, sourcing the ingredients, making it, and then eating it. And it seems like it's worth a little bit more to you. And I think that's the, the same concept behind the ceremony is you, you're with it, you're engaged, and it, it really creates a different atmosphere to eating, drinking, whatever it might be. Well, I think it, for me personally, it gives me time to set intention. So say I'm, I'm going to do something rather than it just being like, meditation practice that I've got to tick off my to-do list for 20 minutes every evening um, it's like it gives me time before that to think about right okay actually what's my intention here uh, how do I want to approach this and you know that might just be as simple as giving myself a little bit of a break it doesn't have to be anything crazy but 
always like to give myself like a little bit of time before I go and do something to set the intention for what I'm doing. And, you know, in the mornings, for example, when I'm making my, my coffee with my um, lion's mane and MCT and stuff, that gives me that time to think, right, okay, what are my micro goals for the day? What are my uh, intentions in terms of how I want to be as an individual today? Um, yeah, and it's just, it's, it's like nice to create those routines. It gives yourself a framework to make sure you do that every day because it's so easy not to do it. And when you do do it, it feel, well, for me personally, it makes a massive difference. Yeah, it's one of the principles I was taught years ago was, we actually discussed this with my martial arts teacher, Angelo, make space, then move, like create space or create a void and then move into it. Because if you don't create space, you're constantly butting up against something in that space. For example, uh, if, if your mind is so busy that you haven't had that little pause, you're just going to be, it's not going to go in. It's not going to be part of the process because you've just, you haven't set the intention. You haven't stepped back and analyzed it for what it is. And this is where people make mistakes. They're so busy making, uh, they're going to make a shake and then they start pouring in some gravy into the process because they've gone, hold on a second, what? Because my mind was somewhere else. So it's really important to engage with what we're doing. And space is one of the big things. Um, it's apparent in movement all the time is if you go, go into a forward fold, people think about folding directly down to the knees, for example, instead of projecting the lower abdomen past the toes. And when you do that, you create this this length, this extra space, and all of a sudden you've gained an extra five centimeters moving down towards your toes. And it's such a simple concept, but it can be applied across the board, across, across everything. And I noticed as well, it said you... Um, on your site, it mentioned that you were creating the labels on sleeper trains. So I'm sure there was quite a bit of space in, that, <laughs> in there to create these things. Yeah, we did some, they were some of the most interesting experiences in my life. We did a 36 hour sleeper train from uh, like the Northwest corner. I can't remember where we were exactly, but um, to go see the Taj Mahal, we did a 36 hour sleeper train. That was one of the more interesting experiences of my life. There was a, a bird cage with a dead fish in it behind my seat, if you believe, if you can believe it, that was, I just, wow. Was the Idiot bird in was, there as well, or not? Sorry? <laughs> was the bird in the cage with no, the fish? No bird what? in the cage, just a, a, imagine a bird cage that you'd have a parrot in, but there was just a dead fish in the bottom of it, and it was sort of tucked under my seat, um, <laughs> which was bizarre but by the we you know by this point we were five weeks into india so nothing was going to surprise me at that stage no you, you've already dealt with the traffic with the cow walking up the middle of the road followed by six lanes of traffic on two lanes yeah going into your training because obviously you mentioned the other strong training background has that changed over the years as you've become more aware of the holistic methods uh, and i noticed you brought out uh, an ape strong training kettlebell which is very different to what most people would perceive as a normal kettlebell uh yeah my training has changed massively so i was introduced to training uh by my dad when i was like about 14 in our garage at home and it was like bodybuilding stuff you know four sets of 12 curls uh lat raises bench press and that would be it session done um and then obviously as i kind of started playing rugby and getting proper snc training programs but i was constantly uh, like I said earlier, being told I needed to put on weight. So there was like a huge emphasis on compound movement, squat, bench, deadlift, just because uh, I was told that was what was going to put the most weight on my frame. 
And uh, that was actually how I got injured. So when I was at my final year at the Gloucester Academy, um, I blew, I had uh, teletendinitis in both my knees and I couldn't understand why at the time, but I was squatting heavy three times a week and playing rugby every day on a rubber crumb. So um, yeah, I knackered my knees that way. Uh, and then I suppose when I went to Loughborough, it was pretty much more the same, you know, like a lot of uh, weight training and um, maybe it got a little bit more intelligent then, but a lot of sort of rugby specific stuff. And then after I finished playing rugby, I got into martial arts. So I did Muay Thai for a couple of years, um, which I really loved. Uh, and that was when I was in London prior to going away traveling. So uh, my idea when we went away traveling was we're going to go to India for six weeks, then we're going to go to Thailand, then I'm going to train at Tiger Muay Thai for three, four months. But my girlfriend wasn't so up for that idea, so we ended up <laughs> not doing it. Um, but then I actually, when I got back, um, yeah, then I suppose, then my training exploration really started taking off. So when we moved to Bristol, I got introduced to Tim Sheaf, who uh, he's like, he won Parkour World Championship, and he's really he's got a fascinating mind when it comes to movement um, and he kind of taught me how to have fun while I was training before it was all you know wrote right down my training session five sets of five reps I've got to do 1.25 kilos more in weight than last week and that was kind of how I approached everything it was very like um, performance and goals driven and then you know Tim kind of uh, introduced me to just having fun with training and uh, after that, I kind of explored all the strong fit stuff and really, really started getting into that. And that that clicked for me massively, more strongman training, lifting sandbags, kettlebells, maces, uh, farmers carries, this sort of thing, even just going out and lifting rocks. And that clicked for me. I was like, all right, okay, this is the training that I love doing. And then, yeah, kind of out of that, the, the eight kettlebell was born. So... Just wanted to do a different take on a kettlebell, um, and you know one of the frustrations with Sam, you know, with kettlebells is they go up in two kilo in increments, and you know if you want a kettlebell, you know you've got to buy, you know, you know friends of mine have got like ten different kettlebells because they want all the different weights, uh, and playing around with sandbags. Well, a lot of sandbags are uh, adjustable, so you'll have a sandbag, and within that you'll have a ten kilo bag, a twenty kilo bag. And you can open it up and take one out and change the weight. So the idea with the kettlebell was like, well, can we do this with a kettlebell? So, and then we were just about to launch the nose tail line with the beef organs, with the colostrum and the other stuff we've got coming. So through that whole idea, we're like, well, could we make it out of leather? So we started speaking to leather factories and leather's really expensive, which I never really thought of before then. But these factories have leather leather offcuts which are like where a cow maybe run, rubs up against a barbed wire fence or something like that and they can't sell that leather to make shoes or make handbags so they've got a big stack of this stuff that they kind of keep just in case someone wants it but they don't really sell it so like well we don't mind if the kettlebells have got scratches in the leather or you know they, they're going to get scratches in them anyway um, so that's what we use to create the kettlebells from and uh, yeah, you basically, they've got an inner bag with inside the leather, which you can open up, that's full of metal shot, and then you can just pour the metal shot out. We've got a video on my YouTube which sort of explains how to do it, but yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Um, yeah, it's just fun to play around with. 
It's a, it's a great idea, actually, because I used to find when I used to travel, it's especially trying to take kettlebell. I mean, I, I did an event in South, uh, sorry, North Wales the other week with the Natural Edge, and I had the car, I had the club bell in the back, which was 20 kilos, and to have something that you could almost flat pack and then take with you, and then even if you needed to fill it up at the other end with some other type of weight, it would make such a massive difference. So I think that's a great concept because otherwise you're relying on things like bands and body weight, which are good, but having a weighted tool of some sort does make it a lot better. It does give you that extra, that little bit extra. Yeah, and I think like you know, you said before that you into kettlebell training. There's nothing quite like it in terms of, well, for me anyway, just being able to get into flows with the kettlebell where you can pick a routine and go for it. And it really gives you that sense of just like, it's almost meditative more than other training because you can just stay in a cycle of a, fl- you know, of a flow of an exercise. So yeah, I, 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 you know, I really like the fact that we've done this and we're, we're going to try and do something with a sandbag as well where we come up with a bit of a, I don't know, a better way of doing it. Because I've been using sandbags and like I said, they're adjustable, but none of them we've come across are that user-friendly. So we're going to try and do something with that. But we're not, we're not set on anything yet. So with the uh, with the kettlebell, did you have to do quite a bit of work around trying to sort of improve the stitching around the handle so it didn't there was no abrasive issue with the handle? Did that come into your thought process? The lengths we had to go through to create the kettlebell were the first one. I'll sh- I'll show you a picture of it after this. It looked like a witch's handbag. It was <laughs> it was awful. It was like long, and I got it back from design. I was like, what on earth? It, it was, I think, about 30 iterations we went through before we got this one. But yeah, we were, we were really lucky. So the, the, the ladies that helped us with the design, they're expert stitchers. They've been doing it for like 30 years, both of them. And, and they had all the ideas that we didn't in terms of how to reinforce the handle on the inside, um, where the stitching was closing on the bottom of the handle. It was rubbing people's fingers. So we changed that. So yeah, we went through a, a bunch of different iterations, really happy with how it, how it came out in the end. The only thing you can't do with it is bottoms up press because the handle is kind of floppy at the edges, if that makes sense. Um, but otherwise it works exactly like a normal kettlebell. Yeah, and to be honest, bottoms up press, I mean, you can. there, there are other things you can substitute for that, for that instability. But if it's if the kettlebell as well is quite pliable, it adds a, different context it's a very different uh, animal literally to to what a cast iron bell would be but yeah man they were interesting as well um future products so you mentioned that you're talking about sandbags have you got anything else you guys are looking into out of interest like anything that's popped up in the industry where you thought hey this is actually this is good yeah so we've got um we're on the on the verge of launching a whole nose to tail range um so at the moment, we've got the beef organs and the colostrum. Um, we are bringing out a collagen and a, um, a bone extract, um, which is great for anyone that's got any, you know, basically bone issues like osteoporosis or anything like that um, in September. And then between September and the end of the year, we've got uh, another few products that were added to the nose to tail range. So we're working on um, like a fish egg powder um, which is really cool because it's got the omega-3s that people often associate with fish egg but because it's in um sorry with with fish products but because it's in the egg format uh, it's in a phospholipid form so it's, it can cross the blood brain barrier easier 
Um, and also, uh, it's really cool. Some really cool research that Dr. Pa- Rhonda Patrick brought to my attention was when she was pregnant with her child, she was eating loads of salmon roe because um, she said that the by eating the fish egg that actually feeds the baby brain as opposed to the mother's brain, which is incredible to think about. But if we look at sort of like if you look at ancestral nutrition and ancestral wisdom. Uh, like the Native Americans would say that, you know, if someone had a bad heart or a bad liver, eat the heart of a healthy animal. And, you know, a lot of people in the past say, oh, it's just, you know, sort of woo-woo science. Um, but studies out of the University of Edinburgh, which are happening, you know, which have happened within the last few years, actually showed that, you know, if you consume liver, for example, um, that will preferentially go to rebuild your own liver which is you know, amazing to think. And so it seems to be the same thing with the fish eggs and then um, pregnant mothers if, you know, if they've got a child. Well, it makes sense. If, if something's genetic makeup is identical in the animal and the human, it would make sense that if they are very similar, it could, it could help that organ or whatever it might be. It just it sort of makes sense, really. I think we've just got so disconnected from that that concept. It's almost like we go, nope, food goes in and energy comes out, and we're this we're a furnace. That's it. With this calorific furnace. That's that's all we are. But it's good. It's almost like we've come back from calories. Now most industry went to macros, and now it's like finally, it's all right. It's about minerals and mineral density and, and mineral spectrum. We now start to be looking at this as a whole. So it's it's brilliant. It's really good to see. Um, especially when you sort of jump on this a few years back and you go, come on, why isn't everyone doing this? Why why is no one looking at this stuff? Because you could have a protein that's empty, or I've talked about this before, carbohydrate that's empty. Just because it has that tick doesn't necessarily mean it's it's got the mineral density of another type of food. So we're not robots. We're not fueled like a car. It's a very different process, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think that's, that's something that, uh, some of the information that I'm really focusing on, I'm working on it at the moment is basically creating a table listing out all the micronutrients uh, vitamins and minerals um, split by water soluble and fat soluble and what all of those uh, vitamins and minerals do in terms of the body what the optimal ranges are compared to the RDA because that's another problem it's like the recommended daily allowance which is put out by you know the World Health Organization is uh, i my my um, coach that I'm studying under at the moment, Jake Carter, he jokes and says it's the uh, recommended deficiency allowance because they literally set it at the point at which you know it doesn't cause disease. So, for example, the vitamin C level is set at the level that well, as long as you eat this much, you won't get scurvy. But you know we shouldn't be fa- you, we shouldn't be basing our micronutrient levels on what's going to stop us getting disease. It should be based upon what's going to be able to make us function optimally. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm working on this project at the moment, which is taking ages, which is going to list out every micronutrient, the optimal range, what that does for the body, and then the signs and symptoms of deficiency. So for example, you know, if you've got, um, I don't know, yellow under your eyes or, you know, brittle nails or something like that, it, it might give you an, uh, you might be able to look at this and see, okay, well, I might be deficient in this, that, and the other. That I think that'd be brilliant because it means that people could say, right, here's a symptom, and what I'm going to try and do is correct it with nutrition before I start to reach for the pill. 
and it's not to say medication doesn't have a place because it it does for some people especially if you go too far down a certain route or there's an acute issue or an issue that's gone so far that food's going to do something but it's not going to help you maybe it has to be a short-term program where you, you move to medication for a reason and I think if someone could introduce nutrition and just say, right, I'm going to give it two months. I'm going to try and work on this in conjunction with maybe maybe they want to chat to the doctor about it. That's up to them. But if it improves it in a few months, you go, actually, maybe I was just massively deficient in a B vitamin or maybe I was vitamin C didn't exist in my diet or my iron was very low because I know for pregnant ladies, uh, they're advised to take an iron supplement. But as we know, different types of iron, which we've discussed, and the way it's absorbed and also iron is not working alone it's working in conjunction with other nutrients like copper like other bits and pieces that that are needed to manage it and it's not an iron level doesn't necessarily dictate exactly what's going on it can mean a multitude of things couldn't it yeah for sure and i think like what you said about sort of coming um choosing nutrition over medication potentially it's like if someone, so for example, I, I use my dad as, dad as an example. My dad's on um, medication for uh, high blood pressure. Well, a lot of the research is coming out at the moment showing that high bl- blood pressure might be caused by your potassium and sodium ratio being out of whack. So there's nothing you know stopping him from going, right, actually, because he, he fully wants to come off the medication and he's working with his doctor to get to a place where he can come off it. Well, you know, if he increases his potassium intake, then, you know, he might put his body in a natural state through nutrition, whereas he can come off that medication and be healthy. So, you know, medication might provide a short term fix, like you said, but then you can do the nutrition, you know, the nutritional um, interventions in the background to get your body in a really good place to where you come off the medication at some point. Yeah, the nutrition is attacking the source, whereas the medication is dealing with the symptom of the source that's dysfunctional, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, we've become this because the symptom shows a problem because it, again, it's running against a marker, isn't it? Like we talked about the World Health Organization setting certain markers. We're not looking at, it's been very prevalent in the current, well, last two years, what a healthy individual is deemed as, which is very subjective. A healthy individual could be borderline deficient in every single mineral listed on these things so they get admitted to hospital with whatever it might be could be a viral infection could be anything and they are almost almost like on that that border of like one milligram above so they're technically in the healthy box but then you get someone who's optimal at the other end and they're deemed healthy but the difference is massive it could be twofold threefold improvement in terms of mineral density in terms of their food and nutrition intake yeah, 100%. And I think that's that's um, one of the things I always say to people as well. It's like sovereignty over health is so important. Like we, as a general population, we tend to outsource as much as we can. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, and it's, it's really unfortunate, but will put whatever into their body in terms of, you know, food, alcohol, etc. And then pile on the stresses in terms of poor sleep quality, you know, we, we could go on forever with modern society, you know, there's a million and one stresses, but they'll get to the point at when they break or something goes wrong and then turn to the doctor and it's fix me. But I think I always encourage people to, well, well actually, can we be 
preventative towards this and can you take some sovereignty back over your health because ultimately your health just like everything else in your life is your responsibility you need to take ownership over it um and like you said then with the with that example is like you know you can look at you know you can invest in getting some blood work done seeing where you know where your reference ranges are for a lot of these minerals and vitamins and um and this is another saying of paul checks but he says your health becomes your number one priority at some point in your life you may as well make it on your own terms and that's an investment right it, it, rather than running into a complication further down the line you know you could make an investment in getting some blood work done or you know not even you don't even need to go that far just educating yourself on you know what you know diets work for you intuitively checking in with food choosing some healthier lifestyle practices whether that's doing 10 minute walks after food you know not watching the tv while you're eating like you said earlier that's a massive one that people don't even consider the um the difference it makes to you know your blood sugar levels and all this sort of stuff but you you invest in that now and you're not going to run into these problems later down the line yeah i completely agree it's it's that short term We've gone over this hundreds of times already in the, these podcasts because, it, again, we can't, you can't change, you can't change these concepts because they are fundamental to us as human beings. We need to do something every day. We can't wait for someone else to do something for us. Like you said, sovereignty of your own health is so important because we could we could spend all the money in the world on all these top level practitioners, doctors, whatever you name, and then the doors close and it's up to you, and it literally is. You can bluff all you want and say, I've done it, I haven't done it. But fundamentally, we know, we know if we've done or put the work in. And if you're getting sick every day, if, if, if you're constantly dealing with things every single day or you're ill every month, then it's a sign as well, isn't it? It's a sign to start doing something. Because if you don't, you might get 100 warnings and then all of a sudden, then the acute issue comes up because it's a very gentle way of the body saying, come on. Come on, you're going to have to start looking after me and give me the correct fuel mindset, whatever it might be, correct habit. Yeah, for sure. That will, again, I know I've already referenced him twice, but Paul Check calls it the pain teacher. He says that, you know, the pain teacher shows up and asks you to listen. And, you know, that might be little incidents. And if you don't take notice of those little incidents, something major is going to happen. And if you don't take notice of when the major thing happens, then you're going to be looking at you know some serious trouble further down the line. So yeah, our body's really, really, really intelligent, and it will give us the signs. We've just got to be watching out for them. Definitely, I totally agree. And that actually leads into my last question, which is the generic that I ask every single person that joins me on this podcast. So to finish every podcast, I'm keen to leave the listeners with some simple routines or habits that they can adopt and apply on a daily basis. What principles will be at the top of your list to form a foundation of human health or in other words, a human first approach? Okay, that's good. That's a great question. Um, I kind of have, I don't know, six pillars which I live my life by in terms of like health and performance. And there, you know, nutrition is a big one and sleep's a big one. Movement, uh, community, and I also say like play kind of comes into community or, or even movement, like enjoying yourself. And that can be so difficult to get across. Like old me, that was, you know, the last thing I do, such a type A personality, constantly working. And it's it's very common with guys, like they just find it hard to switch off. Um, 
And then uh, the other, the final one is having a working in practice. So that, I think if I'm to expand on one, I'll expand on that one because that's the one I've kind of made most progress in recently. And I've already talked about nutrition a lot. Um, but the, oh, sorry, the, sorry, there was six. So the one I missed was nature. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go into the working in practice. So like I said, my girlfriend's a meditation teacher and I've meditated pretty consistently since uh, we came back from that trip to India. And I can't even remember how many years ago, but it, quite a few years ago now. Um, but meditation for me never had the same impact on my life as it did with her. And I was kind of looking for another practice and recently I've started doing uh, a contemplation practice and that has been a massive, massive game changer for me. And it's really simple. I do it in the morning and in the evening and it takes as long as it needs to take. Some days it can take 10 minutes. Some days I might be sat there for an hour um, and it just all depends on, you know, how much time, time you've got, I guess. Um, but one of the things is I'd say is not to rush it. But basically what I do is I set up uh, in the morning and I decide how am I feeling within myself? You know, how's my body feeling? How have I slept? And I'll just ask those questions with myself. And maybe if I haven't slept so well, I'll go, right, okay, well, today needs to be a little bit of an easier day. And I'll just have that awareness. Um, and then I think about, right, who do I want to be as an individual? Like what are the characteristics I want to embody as a, you know, as a human being? And then I'll think about that generally, but also today. So I'll normally like note a thing down. So I'm just looking at my notepad under the desk to see what I've written today. So I've written breathe sunlight download today. So it's just about stepping out of my office when I'm working, taking a breath, standing in the sun, even if the sun isn't shining, it's a bit cloudy today, but just putting my face up to the sun and just allow myself to just take that, you know, take that moment, actually take a break. So I'll set that and then I'll move on to like, what are my micro goals for the day? So in terms of work, you know, what do I need to do? And I'll note them all down. And that's one of the things um, I found really helped me actually is having micro goals written down on a piece of paper. And some of them might literally be send a text to, you know, someone about a restock of a product. It'll be a 10 second job, but just to like tick that off and just keep that dopamine flowing. Um, and then the final thing I do is uh, I'll do a visualization. So, you know, where am I going with the company? And yeah, I'll do that. And that as a practice has been an absolute game changer for me. That was the morning in the evening. It slightly varies. I'll do like a little analysis of how did I think today went? Was I aligned with, did I take those breaks I wanted to take? You know, did I download? Did I get some sun on my face? That sort of thing. But um, it takes a fairly similar format. And that's, you know, kind of the newest part of my health practice that I've introduced, which is really moving the needle for me. So hope that answers your question. Yeah, definitely. It's like an internal, it's like a board meeting, isn't it? It's like you've turned up, you've done your awareness, you've done your internal checks, and you've said, you're almost pitching to yourself, right? I'm going to open up the day for the team, but internal team. And then you're closing the day off at the end. And it's a really nice way of doing it. I think it's almost like building in that sympathetic and then sort of inducing the parasympathetic at the end of the day as well with the other things we've mentioned, use of the products, all that sort of stuff as well. 
Josh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on here. It's been really good to dive into your products, company ethos, and I am looking forward to doing more work with you guys in the future because I love the brand and you guys have just embodied everything that you are selling, which that authenticity is, is, is brilliant. It's really good to see. Awesome, David, and thanks so much for having me on. Like, really enjoyed the conversation and I have to run it, run it back. I've just launched my own podcast, so we'll have you on with us. That's really good. Thank you, mate. Wicked, David. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I feel a lot was covered during the conversation with Josh, and I am massively on board with the brand's ethos, as well as the overall perspective discussed around supporting sustainable agriculture. I am also pleased to announce that Ape Nutrition will be supporting the podcast going forward as one of our main sponsors. To find out more about anything discussed in today's episode, check out the show notes, and I will see you on episode eight. Thank you.